Appreciate everybody being with us again tonight. I don't say that uh, as a formality. Appreciate every single one of you being here this evening. And I hope our time together will be, will be time well spent. Um, I have to say this morning that I embedded a little test in the sermon that I didn't tell anybody about. I just wanted to see if people would pick up on it. People would, would if they were listening, and uh, see if anybody would uh, bring it to my attention. I was preaching about truth, and so I slipped in a little error just to see if people would pick up on that. And, and a few did. And probably more did than said something to me about it, but a couple of people did speak up and say something to me about it. You see, the speed of light is not 186, eight, uh, whatever, whatever I, what did I say? 186,000 miles per hour or something like that. It's actually 186,000 miles per second. It's just a test. <laughs> now that's error as well. It wasn't a test at all. It was, it was, a, it was a mistake. But it proves my point, doesn't it? That, that really proves my point. There is truth and there is error. And what I said was wrong. And the people that mentioned it to me uh, said, gave me the facts of the matter. And so just help me prove my point. I appreciate that. All right, very good. Let's go to Acts chapter 16 tonight. Acts chapter 16. We're going to talk about one of the cases of conversion that we find here in, in the book of Acts. As you know, there are several in the book of Acts that are told to us with some detail. And so we want to pick up on one of those tonight, talk about one of those, and, and uh, just to pick a, especially look at two things about this case of conversion. So when Paul is on his second missionary journey, sometimes we describe his preaching trips in, in that way, in Acts 16, he answers the call that he received to go to Macedonia. And so you see that in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so, and so apparently that had not entered Paul's mind to go over there to Macedonia, but sees this vision, hey, come over here and help us. And so he decides, and he and his companions decide to go. And then, then it gives us a little bit of the, the travel involved. He boards a ship at Troas. He sails across the Aegean Sea. He landed at Neapolis, and from there he went to Philippi. So you can see that in verse 12. From there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And they were, we were staying in this city for some days. Apparently Luke is with them, and, and Paul is, Silas is with them, maybe others as well. And so we go over to, Philipp, go over to Macedonia, that's the region, and make our way to Philippi, a leading city, Roman colony. Uh, one of the advantages of that, or one of the uh, characteristics of that is it would be like living on Roman soil, but a lot of soldiers, when they retired, they, they went and lived in Philippi. And so we go to Philippi, it's a Roman colony, and we're there for quite a while. We stay there for some days. Well, the following verses tell us how they met a woman named Lydia, and they preach the gospel to her, they teach her, and she receives it, and, and she's baptized, and she becomes a Christian. 
And then we read more detail about Paul's experience in Philippi. Verse 16 says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, that's where they had met Lydia, and so they're going to go back there, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So here's a, apparently a young girl, a, a slave girl. She's a slave. Uh, she's uh, the possession of her masters, apparently more than one master. And uh, she's unique in that she's, you know, there's a spirit of divination in her. And that's related to her as though this is a genuine thing, this is a real thing. And so we might call it a, an unclean spirit, something like that, it is in her and enables her to tell people's fortunes. And so she could sit with someone and say, here's what's going to happen to you. And again, apparently this, this, this was an actual, genuine case of this. Well, it tells us that she follows Paul around. She's, she's following him from place to place and crying out, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And so she's, she's following them from place to place, and she's really saying something that's true, crying out and calling out. And so day after day, as Paul moves from place to place, there she is again, you know, and she's calling out, and it begins to annoy Paul. And it says in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. You might wonder, well, why does he do that? She's, she's really telling the truth and maybe calling attention to them and maybe bringing some people to them. Well, you know, we, we don't need the testimony of demon-possessed people uh, to help us. It really doesn't help us. It hurts us. And so Paul cast that out. And so here's someone, she's telling the truth, but people know her, some know her, know her character, and know what's going on with her. So this is really not a positive thing to have the demons, demon-possessed people, testifying. And so Paul, Paul casts her out. That's really to her advantage anyway, isn't it? For her to have full control of her faculties and able to reason and think and hear the gospel for herself and, and respond to it. Well, when her masters see this, see, they were making a great deal of money uh, from her. They're taking advantage of her. Well, today we'd say they're exploiting her. And so her masters are using her to, to get rich, to, to, to get some money. They're making a, a great profit from her. She has really no control over this, and she's not benefiting from it, but, but her masters are. And now that Paul has cast the demon out, they are not happy about that at all. And so verse 19 tells us, when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. They're not concerned about the girl, are they? <laughs> they're concerned about the money. And so when the their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And so, they see their source of profit is gone. They take Paul and Silas, they drag them before the authorities, and they bring charges against them. They're pretty general in nature. 
They're basically saying these men are disturbing the peace by promoting strange religious practices. And so that's, that's not a, an especially egregious charge. I mean, it's not violent or anything like that. And, and so they, they really want Paul and Silas punished, not because they're lawbreakers, but because they've taken their source of profit away. Eventually, they're exonerated of all of this. You can see that at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 35. But we want to look at what takes place in between. Now, we're told that the crowd turns against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And so, and so they're stripped, they're, the robes are torn off of them, and they're beaten with rods. One of three times Paul was beaten with rods. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. Three, two other times he was beaten with rods, although we, we don't know when those were. Well, they're put into the inner prison. You can see that in verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And so the, the jailer, maybe a, a retired Roman soldier, don't know that for sure, but possibly. Now, you take these men and you put them in prison and you guard them securely. We don't want, any, we, we don't want to take a chance on them getting out. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the stocks were those wooden devices. You lock your feet in there, have, to, you know, have holes where you put your legs through and lock your feet in there. And they're, they're not made for comfort. I, I'm pretty sure of that. And so here they are, and they're also chained. We learned that a bit, little bit later. And so here they are in the inner prison, and then you're deep into, in, inside the prison. No doubt it's dark in there and dank, and they're chained, and their feet are, or their legs are in the stocks. In fact, the jailer is so confident that they're going <laughs> to remain there, he, he goes to sleep. Now, later on, he, he wakes up, but that's sort of how unconcerned he is about anything happening to them. Well, the Scriptures tell us in verse 25, about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so they're, they're not bemoaning their situation. Oh, how unfair we've been treated. Oh, woe is us. You know, why are these things happening to us? And, and, and kind of down in the dumps about all of this and uh, sad about it, upset about it. They're, they're praying. They're singing hymns. And they're singing loud enough for the other prisoners to listen to them. I, I was reminded of Acts chapter 5 uh, when I was thinking about this. Acts chapter 5 verse 40, a similar occasion. Disciples are being persecuted. And verse 40 says, They took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Or oh, maybe that was Paul and Silas' attitude. You know, it's a blessing for us to be able to suffer for the cause of Christ. <laughs> Which is, I imagine Luke is, is writing this to the first readers and telling them, this is the way we need to face persecution. When we're persecuted, we don't need to, as I said a moment ago, moan and groan about it. Sing and pray about it. It's a blessing to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so, 
This is how to respond to persecution. Well, an earthquake takes place, verse 26, and it sets them loose. The, the chains are loosened from them, and they're loosened from their bonds. And the jailer wakes up, sees the situation, assumes that the prisoners have escaped, draws his sword, and is about to kill himself. Now, he's responsible for the security of the prisoners. And if the prisoners escape, he's going to be held responsible for that. In fact, he's going to pay with his life. Now, in Acts chapter 12, we find a similar situation, uh, verses 18 through 29, and, and so forth. So you, you, can, you can look at that on your own time. We won't take the time to look at that tonight. But just uh, understand that he's about to... I would rather go ahead and kill myself and suffer a swift death than suffer torture at the hands of, you know, my superiors because an earthquake took place and the prisoners escaped. Well, Paul rushes out. Uh, verse uh, 28. He cries out with a loud voice, do, do, your heart, do yourself no harm. We're all here. In verse 29, he called for lights. He rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Look at the, look at the little details in that, in that statement. Chuck talked about the details of the resurrection today. Well, here's another case in point where we have really some kind of trivial details in a way, but it adds to the you know, credibility of, of, the, of the report. You know, these, these are the kind of details that an eyewitness would supply. He called for lights. He rushed in. He was trembling with fear. He fell down. All those little details just, again, add to the credibility of the story. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So I just wanted to go through that, go through that episode, the events leading up to the question, because that's the question we're going to think about for the rest of our time. What, what must I do to be saved. And so Paul goes on to answer the question. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. He brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so he tells them, believe on the Lord Jesus, you and, and you will be saved, you and your family. But that's not all he said. Now that's important to note as well. That they did say that, but that's not all he said. And he spoke the word of the Lord to him. And so there was more involved in answering that question than just that one statement, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So we need to take note of that. What I want to do is just focus on the question and then focus on Paul's answer, just those two things. The jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? So well, what do you think he meant by that? What must I do to be saved? Do you, do you think he meant, what do I need to do to be saved from this earthquake? <laughs> There's an earthquake, no doubt it's strong enough to loosen the bonds of the prisoners and, and all that. Well, maybe, maybe he's saying, what must I do to be safe from, from the earthquake? Or maybe he's saying something like, what do I need to do to be safe from the consequences of the prisoner's escape? 
Oh no, the prisoners have escaped. My life is in danger. What do I need to do to be safe from that? You know, what, what do you think he meant? Well, we know what he meant from the answer that Paul gave. If, if he meant, what do I need to do to be safe from the earthquake, or what do I need to do to be safe from the consequences of the prisoner's escape, Paul's answer would have been very much different, wouldn't it? If he has the earthquake in mind, well, you need to get out of this building, you need to get out in the open, you know, something like that. But that, that's not the answer he gives, is it? He says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And so what does he mean, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do for my soul to be saved? <laughs> that, that's, we know that's what he meant from Paul's answer. Well, how did he know to ask about the salvation of his soul? Well, we're not told that in the story, but there are lots of ways he could have found out what he, why he needed to ask that question. He might have heard Paul and his colleagues preaching one day. They were there many days in the city of Philippi, and so it may be that he heard them preaching one day. They were praying and singing during, during the course of their imprisonment, and maybe, maybe he listened to that for a while before he went to sleep. It may be that when Paul and Silas are brought to him, and he's given the charge to take good care of them or close care of them, that as he's putting the chains on Paul and putting his feet in the stocks, Paul is saying to him, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, I kind of think that's a good possibility because over in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, Paul is a prisoner as he writes this, and he says, I want to tell you about my circumstances here. I'm a prisoner, but I want to tell you about my circumstances. Actually, my circumstances have turned out to the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, that's a later situation, but the idea is, now I'm a prisoner, but you know what? That gives me an opportunity to talk to that guard over there and that guard over there. And I wouldn't have had an opportunity to talk to them if I hadn't been a prisoner. So really, it's worked out for good. I, I can spread the gospel here. And that wouldn't be surprising at all for Paul as the, as the guard binding them and putting their chains on and putting their feet in the stock for Paul to say, now I want to tell you about Christ. And so when the earthquake happens, he says, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be saved? So however he learned it, he knew enough to ask about the saving of his soul. Now that is the critical question for all of us, isn't it? What do I need to do to be saved? Now, there are other important questions in life, but this one surpasses them all because it has to do with our eternal destiny. Same question that was asked on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching his sermon, comes to the conclusion, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They're cut to the heart and they cry out, what... Men and brethren, what shall we do? What, what do we need to do? You've convinced us. Now what do we need to do? Same question, isn't it? What do I need to do to be saved? The question implies that the one asking it is in danger. To be saved. To be saved from what? What do we need to be saved from? Well, the fact is our sins have put us in danger with God. 
See, sin is a transgression of God's law. It's a violation of God's will. In the book of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Or some verses say, sin is a transgression of the law. However you transgress God's law, you've committed sin. If you do what God says don't do, that's sin. If you don't do what God says to do, that's sin. Sin is when God has a law and we don't abide by it, we transgress it, we break it. That's, that's sin. Sin is a transgression of the law. We sin by doing what God does not permit. But you know what? We might sin as by not doing what God requires. That would be sin as well. Remember James chapter 4 and verse 17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. You ever been in that situation? <laughs> you, know the, you know the right thing to do. Maybe you ought to speak up to defend the gospel or something like that. You, you know the right thing to do, the morally right thing to do, what you ought to do. And just, just don't do it for some reason. That's sin. And so we talk about sins of commission. We commit sin, transgressing the law. And sins of omission. We don't do what God requires us to do. And so we may sin indeed. We, we may sin in word. In Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? Let no unwholesome word or no corrupt speech proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Well, yeah, that, that, that's a pretty wide, wide, widely encompassing idea, is it? No corrupt speech. Well, that takes a lot of forms, doesn't it? <laughs> Profanity, obscenity, taking the Lord's name in vain, lying, gossip, all sorts of ways we can sin in what we say. As a matter of fact, James says, we've all sinned in what we say, at one time or another, in one way or another. And did you know, we can also sin in thought. And so that, that covers just about everything, doesn't it? By what we do, by what we say, even by what we think. A couple of good illustrations of that found back in Matthew chapter 5 and early part of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Everyone who's angry, that's, that, that's a mental uh, activity, isn't it? To, to be angry. And then a little bit later in verse, 20, uh, verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, that's something that takes place in the mind. He might not act on that lust. He might not tell anybody about the lust. It's just in his mind, in his heart. He, he sinned. And, and so we've all sinned. We sin either in deed or in word or in thought. You know, and there, there are no degrees of sin either. If you sin, you sin. Now, there are some sins that have more serious and severe consequences than others. And so from that perspective, perhaps one sin is worse than the other. But, but if you sin, you sin. If you break the law, you break the law. Whether you break it in this point or in this point, or if you break it once or you break it ten times, if you break the law, you break the law. 
James says in James chapter 2 and verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point becomes guilty of all. You're, you're a lawbreaker. Now, all of us have sinned, and sin puts us in danger of having God's wrath poured out against us. Now, that's, see, that's the danger. When we sin, we're deserving of God's wrath. We're in danger of having God's wrath poured out against us. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at John chapter 3. Now, we all know John 3, 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know John 3, 36? Do you know John 3, 36? Very last verse in the chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. That's not nearly as popular as John 3, 16 for some reason, but, but it's right there, same chapter. <laughs> the wrath of God. Is on, is on him. In Romans 5 and verse 9, look at, look at that passage. Let's just turn over there and look at it. Romans 5 verse 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What must I do to be saved? Saved from what? From God's wrath. See, we're all guilty of sin. And as people that are guilty of sin, well then, God's righteous wrath against sin is directed toward us. Now, fortunately, if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, or rather 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, we find this statement, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> And so we're sinners, we're deserving of God's wrath. God will pour out His wrath upon us, but that's not what He wants. He wants us to be saved through Jesus Christ. That's how, now that's why Paul tells the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. And so let's think about the answer. So we've thought a little bit about the question, we need to all ask our, ourselves that same question. What, what do I need to do to be saved? That's, that's, that's really the most important question we can ask. Just, you know, be, be assured. We don't want to be the recipients of God's wrath in eternity. Yeah, we, don't, we, we don't want that. We don't want to stand in judgment and receive God's wrath. And we don't have to. He doesn't want that. He's taken the initiative to save us. And so let's talk about the answer. The New Testament teaches that Jesus went to, to the cross to turn God's wrath away from sin, uh, away from us. And so look at Romans chapter 3. There's a word used there that suggests this very thing. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, the word propitiation means a satisfaction or an appeasement. And so the idea is that 
Christ appeased God's wrath by going to the cross, enduring the cross, in a sense receiving God's wrath, deflecting it away from us by what He did on the cross. He is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath in that He bore our sins on the cross. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And we receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice by putting our faith in Him, by believing in the Lord Jesus. That's the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Now the New Testament is very clear about this. I've got about a dozen passages here. I won't take the time to read them all, but and we could multiply this two or three times over, I'm sure, without very much difficulty. We've already alluded to John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 8, verse 24, Jesus makes a very similar statement, but in a, in a negative sort of way. Except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. And so, except you believe, same idea, except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, at the, the tomb of, of Lazarus, Martha has come out to meet Him. They engage in conversation. And Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Well, we know what he's talking about there. But the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, again, we, we could multiply this many times over. But maybe that'll suffice to show that the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Now, putting faith in Christ in the New Testament sense is anything but a superficial exercise. In other words, it's not a superficial exercise. It involves deliberate, well-thought-out actions. And so it's, it's, it's not a trivial thing. It's a very important thing. It takes serious thought. It takes deliberate action to put our faith in Christ in the New Testament sense of the word. Now we must believe certain facts about Christ. He is both Lord and Christ. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. If He is Lord, He is the Master. He has all authority. He is the ruler. And so we're called upon to accept that fact, that He is the Lord. In fact, we confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the ruler, the ruler in my life. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one, anointed by God to accomplish His will in the earth, to rule and to reign. That's the idea of Him being the Christ. He is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5 says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When to overcome the world, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what does that mean? It means He is God with us. He is the Word of God made flesh. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. And so, 
What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Put your faith in Jesus. We need to believe certain facts about Jesus. But it involves more than that. Full confidence that Jesus is our Savior. Now, the illustration that I like to use is Romans chapter 4. So, in Romans chapter 4, there, uh, Paul is discussing God's promise to Abraham to make of him a great nation. Of course, when that promise was originally made, Abraham didn't have any children, and it was a number of years before it came to pass. What did, Paul, what, what did Abraham do in that intervening time between the promise, when it was initially made, and the fulfillment of the promise 25 years later? Well, it says in verse 18, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He goes on to say, verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised, He was able to perform. He, uh, verse 22, is credited to Him as righteousness. And so, He hoped against hope. He grew strong in faith. He was fully assured that God was able to perform His promise. He is fully confident that God would fulfill His promise. Now, that's faith. Here's a good example of what faith is. Having full confidence, in this case, the case we're talking about tonight, that Jesus is our Savior. So, it's not just simply believing some facts. It's putting our confidence in Him, putting our trust in Him. I'm trusting Jesus to be my Savior. I'm tr- my every confidence is in Jesus as the Son of God and my Savior. It's trust. It's reliance on Him. It's reliance on Him to save me individually. Not just Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is my Savior. It's Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. (laughs) You know? individualizes it, makes it personal, doesn't it? That's what it means to have faith. We believe He's the Son of God, putting all of our confidence, all of our trust in Him, that He is my Savior. And there's another element to saving faith. It's an obedient faith. Hebrews uh, chapter, right at the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11 illustrates that. Verse 39 of chapter 10 says, We're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then he illustrates what faith to the preserving of the soul or the saving of the soul is. Noah had faith to the saving of the soul. Abel had faith to the saving of the soul. Abraham had faith to the saving of the soul. But if you'll notice in each of those cases, they all had faith that worked, we would say. A faith that obeyed, a faith that acted. And so Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice by faith. Noah, by faith, prepared an ark. Abraham, by faith, obeyed, verse 8. Abraham, by faith, offered his son, verse 17. Jericho fell by faith when the Israelites marched around the city, verse 34. Saving faith is a working faith, not not an, an inactive mental exercise. It's a living, active, working faith. Produces Action produces obedience. And that's the point in James chapter 2 where James tells us that faith without works is dead. And then finally, saving faith produces faithfulness. 
Those two ideas are very closely linked. Faith produces faithfulness. That is, a life lived in a manner consistent with the faith we profess. I confess Jesus is Lord. Now, that's, that's what I believe. <laughs> that's what I confess. Jesus is Lord. That faith then will produce a life that's consistent with that confession. All right, if you, if you say Jesus is Lord, well, then you need to follow Him. If He's your master, you need to obey Him. Jesus Himself asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I say. <laughs> and so faith produces faithfulness in life. And if we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we should live in a manner consistent with that faith. Revelation 2 and verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Galatians 5 verse 22, One of the fruits of the Spirit, faithfulness. And so again, you know, when, when we say believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, that's, that's not a, a trivial, superficial action. We, we learn certain facts. We believe certain facts are true about Jesus. But we commit ourselves to Him. We trust in Him. We put our confidence in Him as our Savior. And we obey Him. We, that faith produces that obedience. And then we live a life of faithfulness. Now I'm going to talk some more about this question next week. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about it the next week and the next week. And we're just getting started. When we say the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is believe on the Lord Jesus. Remember earlier we talked about how in Acts chapter 16, there uh, Paul tells the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, and he spoke the word of the Lord to him. And we made the point at that time that he did more than just say, make just one statement. There, there's more involved than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that some more in the next few weeks. And so we're just getting started. Again, what must I do to be saved? A lot of important questions in our lifetime, but none is more important than this. We need to think about it. We got some people here that need to think about it. Have you done what you need to do to be saved? Now God has done what He needs to do to save you. Everything that you need for your salvation, God has provided. It is right there, you know. Now, now, have you done what you need to do to be saved? Now, remember, our sin incurs the wrath of God. Now, you don't want to stand in judgment, unprepared, receiving God's wrath throughout eternity. You, you don't want that. And so, you need to do what you need to do to be saved. Notice that Paul didn't say to the jailer, oh, don't do anything. You know, God, God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. No, he, he told him, there are, some, there are some things that you need to do. And so we need to give some serious thought to the question. If you're here tonight, we encourage you, if you haven't before, put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior. Now we can talk about repenting of our sins in a future lesson. We'll talk a little bit about confessing our faith, and we'll talk about being baptized in Jesus' name. None of those are contrary to the idea of faith. In fact, everything begins with faith, doesn't it? These other things grow out of and are the consequence of having saving faith, but they're things we need to do as well. So you may be a believer, and a penitent believer. 
who simply needs to make this confession and be baptized. In fact, if that's where you are and that's what you need to do, we encourage you to do it. If your life hasn't been faithful, well then we encourage you to make the necessary corrections tonight as well. So let's pray together as we bring things to a conclusion. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you love us, that you're concerned about us, that, that you want us to be in fellowship with you and have fellowship with you throughout eternity. We're thankful, Father, that you've made that possible through the gift of your Son. We're sorry, Father, that we've transgressed your law, that we've either done or said or thought things that we shouldn't have done, and we've left undone things that we should have done. And we know, Father, that we are undeserving of the great gift that you make possible for us, the gift of eternal life. But we're so thankful, Father, that you have made it possible for us. You sent your Son into the world, went to the cross to make the necessary sacrifice for our sin. Father, we pray that all of us, before we leave here this night, all of us who are accountable to you will believe that Jesus is our Savior. And that that faith, that commitment, that, that trust will produce repentance, confession, and baptism in Jesus' name so that our sins might be washed away. We can live in hope of eternal life. And Father, we pray that if there are those tonight here who are not faithful in their commitment to the Lord, that they'll make the necessary corrections. Again, Father, we are so thankful for what you've done for us. And we pray your help to help us walk day by day in the way that we should go so that we might be with you throughout eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.